Well, as we sing that song, this speaks about the sure and certain hope we have, even in the face of death, in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, do be praying for uh, Ruth Sharp's family as uh, she went to be with the Lord on Thursday more early Thursday morning, and uh, there will be a private family gathering on Wednesday that I, um, Lord willing, will be involved with, and so pray for the hope of the gospel to spread to her family as you pray for them. And as Scripture calls us to mourn with those who mourn, we're also called to rejoice with those who rejoice, and it is a delight to have. Pastor Caleb and Brianna and Nathan and Samuel here this morning. So we just rejoice with them as they're here with us today. We praise God with you both in his kindness uh, in the safe labor and delivery of that beautiful little boy he's gifted you with. Over the years, on a couple of occasions, my wife and I have taken our kids to center in the square to the KW Symphony, which sadly just declared bankruptcy a few months ago. The idea of those trips is just to expose them to the beauty of the sights and sounds of those many instruments playing together. And because they were kids, we picked our spots. We went to movie scores and we went to video game scores. Those are the performances that we took them to. One of my favorite sights on those occasions is the conductor, the maestro, the baton-waving, hand-waving individual on the platform who leads... 80 to 100 plus musicians playing thousands of notes in one accord. In response to the question, what does a conductor actually do, because a lot of orchestras can play just fine without them, the BBC wrote a recent article outlining some of the following. A conductor, they beat the time. They make sure everyone is maintaining the right tempo, reducing the lag between musicians who can't always hear each other right away. They convey an interpretation. They bring a musical score to life as they lead. They lead, certainly, that is what they do. Speaking about the Berlin Philharmonic, one legendary composer, conductor says, I quote, that's an orchestra of rampant individuals. You want to feel fully realized, but if the person on the platform isn't giving them a collective focus, then they are rudderless and bereft. They are also a conduit. They draw the eyes of the audience to help them align with the music and the movements and the emotion of the pieces being played. They also listen with a, I quote, hyper-awareness of awareness. They pay attention to every individual, to every instrument, to every note that is being played. And then they also get the glory. I quote the article again, a truly great conductor can attain something alchemical, magical. What a Latvian maestro describes as a cosmic level of music making, that's why they still get paid the big bucks, sometimes millions of dollars a year. You went into the wrong profession, didn't you? I relay all of this because a conductor is the illustration that came to mind during another week of study in the book of Exodus. As we come to one of the climaxes in the book, in the way all of the pieces come together, God is a divine conductor in the rescue of his people. The timing is his. The interpretation is his. The leadership is his. The omniscience is his. And yes, the glory is his. 
If you think of Exodus as the musical score of God rescuing his people, God is the maestro, he is the conductor. And as we walk away from his performance at the Red Sea, I hope and pray you will hear the following loud and clear that God conducts salvation symphony, symphony to crescendo with his glory. Every moment, every person, every element of creation is orchestrated with precision to reveal God's glory, his splendor, his majesty. God conducts salvation symphony to crescendo with his glory. That includes the trials of his people. That includes our sufferings, that includes our afflictions, that includes our persecutions. It also includes our deliverance. God conducts salvation symphony to crescendo with his glory. Turn with me to Exodus 14 if you haven't already. It should be around page 55 or 56. It's up there, page 56 in the Blue Bibles. And let me pray before we hear God's word again. Would you bow with me to do that? Lord, we sang earlier together that we feel poor in being able to speak about your majesty and your worth. And I pray, Lord, that by your spirit, you would help this lisping instrument be used in your hands to help people see and hear and put their trust in you. Lord, help us as we read, as your word is preached. May you be the one who is exalted. And this I ask for the sake of your beloved Son, into whose hands you have given all things, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So Exodus 14, beginning in verse 1. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they're wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, what is this that we have done, that we have let and we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And Yahweh hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly or with a high hand. The Egyptians pursued them. All Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and encamped at the sea by Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? 
Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Yahweh will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Yahweh said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and Yahweh drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided." And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, Yahweh in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for Yahweh fights for them against the Egyptians. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, Yahweh threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that Yahweh used against the Egyptians so the people feared Yahweh, and they believed in Yahweh and in his servant Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, if you were with us last week, the first section of the chapter that we have just read may seem at odds with what you heard last Sunday. If God knows how to lead us best, graciously, faithfully, constantly, personally, why does he lead the Israelites between a rock and a wet place? In the first movement of the chapter with the emphasis on the wilderness, in verses 3, 11, and 12, God sets up this impossible scenario for Israel. In the second movement of the chapter with the emphasis on the sea, which is mentioned 13 times in eight different verses, God rescues Israel from this impossible scenario. Why does he do this? The text tells us, 
twice in both movements of the chapter. In the first half of the passage, we read in verse 4 that God will harden or strengthen Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them into the wilderness and God will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and the Egyptians will know that he is God, that he is Yahweh. Then in the second movement of the passage, it's repeated in verses 17 and 18, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, this time into the sea, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen, and the Egyptian will know that I am Yahweh when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. All of this occurs so that we understand the song of salvation we are caught up into is ultimately about the praise of God's name. God conducts salvation symphony to crescendo with his glory, true both of our trials and our deliverance. In Salvation Symphony, God conducts our trials to crescendo with his glory. We know elsewhere from Scripture that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things. Including those times when God leads us places we would not choose to go in order to reveal his splendor in ways that we would not otherwise see. God conducts our trials to crescendo with his glory Look with me at 14.1. Then Yahweh said to Moses, tell the people to turn back. Turn back? Turn back? Hasn't the whole point of these three seasons of plagues and the grand finale of the Passover so that they're released from Egypt? And he says, turn back? This is, this is lunacy from all human perspective. But Yahweh is not finished with Egypt. He's not finished showing his glory. He will underline, he will highlight, he will punctuate this with an exclamation mark in the deliverance of his people. So he turns them back to what today are unknown locations, Pi, Hahiroth, Migdol, Baal, Zephon. We don't know where these are exactly. As for the sea, my quick search would reveal the identity of the body of water is in much dispute. Where I land is that the references to the Red Sea Likely the Gulf of Suez. If you look on a map, the Red Sea has two sort of fingers jutting out the top. And one of those is on the northwest side, if you look on a map. And I believe that, that the Lord led them through that body of water. Wherever we might land on the location, there's no getting around the miraculous claim of the text. The story is often told of a non-miracle-believing preacher, an oxymoron if ever I heard one, speaking on this passage, and in the course of the sermon, a member of the congregation called out and said, Praise the Lord, taking all the children through those deep waters. What a mighty miracle. And the speaker is frustrated, and he said, No, 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 this was uh, a shallow marshland that they were going through, and, and it was at best six inches deep. And the member of the congregation says, Praise the Lord for drowning all those Egyptians in six inches of water. What a mighty miracle. Church members are the best. It's the pure, unadulterated faith of church members. There's no getting around that there is something extraordinarily miraculous taking place here. Now, before that deliverance happens, God leads his people into a position that will be as bait to Pharaoh, based on verse 3. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they're wandering in the land. These people are morons. 
Let's go get them. At the same time as God conducts the disadvantaged position of the Israelites, God is once again conducting the heart resolve of the king of the world's superpower. In verse 4, Yahweh strengthens Pharaoh's heart a final time. A divine act of judgment that gives Pharaoh over to the trajectory he has rebelliously pursued this entire time. Once more, the infinitely intricate, inseparable dovetail joint of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, the interlock in God-glorifying ways. As we cut, the scene cuts back to the palace in Egypt in chapter, verse 5, what God tells Moses is exactly what happened. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind, that's literally the heart, of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they're, what have we done? There goes our free workforce. But that's not the question. They say, why have we let them go? What is this we have done? And that's not the question that they should have posed. The question they should have posed is what is this that we have done that we haven't gone with Israel to serve Yahweh as they are? Sadly, as they will soon experience, their continued rebellion will result in a just and watery grave. Rather than joining Israel on the way to worship God on the mountain, they suit up like an ancient SWAT team to overtake and recapture their former slaves. And Pharaoh seems so, he's so eager. The picture in verse 6 is that he himself, he hitches his own chariot, even though he's got many servants who could do it for him. And at this time, the chariot would have been the most advanced military device. And he brings his highest-end chariots employed, along with all the rest of his chariots, the best of his men, his horses. He just empties the armory, the full military might of Egypt has just been unleashed to hunt down an extremely vulnerable Israel. And for the rest of the chapter, there's this repeated emphasis on the military might of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It's in verse 4, 6, 9, 17, 18, 23, 26, and 28. The writer wants us to know that Israel is facing impossible odds up against this superpower. Before too long, with a hard heart and urging on harnessed horses, Pharaoh's forces overtake the Israelites, as verse 9 indicates. And then in verse 10, the language has this highly dramatic slowdown effect. They're coming in the dark. So perhaps Israel haven't even seen the dust cloud that has been kicked up from the Egyptian army. When Pharaoh is close enough to be seen, the people lift up their eyes and behold, Pharaoh and the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. I don't know if you've ever seen the animated Lion King movie. And there's that moment where Simba goes into the gorge and the wildebeest come over in a stampede and the camera zooms in, his eyes go as big as saucers and he runs for his life. Feared greatly here seems like an understatement. They're about to get mown down like grass. And in verse 10, their first instinct is commendable an example we should follow when confronted with real dangers, which this world is full of for the people of God. It says that the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh. Is that your first instinct when you're threatened or feel like you're in danger? Or is crying out to the Lord just the afterthought? 
something that you do after you've tried everything else in your own power and strength. Their first instinct was to cry out to Yahweh. Their second instinct is one that we don't need any help cultivating. There's biting sarcasm. They lash out that spiritual leader. And there's an I told you so. And none of these are fruits of faith, but rather unbelief mingled in. In verse 11, they say, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? This is ironic because what's Egypt known for? It's tombs and it's embalming. There's plenty of graves in Egypt. They continue, What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? And that has a disconcerting ring of Pharaoh's question. The Egyptians are wondering why on earth they let them go. The Israelites are wondering why on earth they've been brought out. Rightly, the psalmist says, they rebelled by the sea. And in verse 12, there's the I told you so snark. Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone. That we might serve the Egyptians. It would have been better than dying here in the wilderness. Sometimes spiritual leaders experience these blows from those that they are given responsibility for. But Yahweh told them that they would go and worship him on the mountain. So they will not be dying in the wilderness. Moses takes the brunt of their fears as leaders do when God's people are unhappy with what God says or the way God does what he does. And in response, he gives a backbone to the faith of the Israelites in verses 13 and 14. He rebukes them in the strongest possible terms one can in the Hebrew language. And rebuke is appropriate based on all that they've seen of Yahweh this far. He says to the people, fear not. Stand firm. And see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will work for you today. They will see the Israelites again, but not in the Egyptians, but not in the way that they see them right now. Because Yahweh will fight for you, he says, and you only have to be silent or to be still. Now, before we see how God conducts the deliverance Moses speaks of, just surveying those verses, I ask this question What are the notes in this salvation symphony where God conducts our trials? What are the notes that he wants us to hear? When our backs are up against the wall and it seems that all the forces of hell have been unleashed against us, what are the notes that are to ring in the ears of faith? I believe that God wants us to hear notes of his sovereignty. That's one way he gets glory over Pharaoh and all his host. He is showing that he is king over the kings of the earth. Pharaoh is a pawn in God's hands, free to move within the confines of agency God has established, but nevertheless placed where God wills. And so are we, his people. The Lord puts Israel in this predicament to reveal his glory, and the scriptures are full of similar examples. It was the Lord who said to the Satan, have you considered my servant Job? The Lord Jesus sent the disciples across the sea where they struggled all night against the storm. 
And then he walked out onto the water to pass by them so that he could see his glory. The man born blind wasn't being punished for his sin or for the sin of his parents, but so the works of God might be displayed in him. A messenger of Satan was sent to harass Paul so he would learn of the sufficiency of God's grace and power. And the psalmist wrote, It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And if this sounds unfair, if it sounds callous, or if it sounds perhaps even cruel, remember this. In the sovereignty of God, these momentary lightness of afflictions are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far surpasses every single one of the afflictions that we experience in this life. Because the God who composed Salvation Symphony, the maestro conducting Salvation Symphony, he wrote himself into the song, friends. And the second person of the Trinity, God took on flesh. And soon we will marvel and celebrate again at God the Son, adding a human nature to his divine nature and dwelling among us. And he is the suffering Savior who came to set us free from our sufferings resulting from sin and from Satan and from death. And the Pharaoh of darkness hounded him in the wilderness and hounded him to the cross, unaware that the God-orchestrated sufferings of Christ was the trap that would crush his own head. And there, as Jesus suffered, bled, and died to save us, God's glory blazes brightest. God put himself in the worst possible position to bring us from our own. And you bring me all of the religions of the world. Bring me every single one, and at this point, I will show you Christ is far greater and better because he is the one who entered into our suffering to deliver us from it. And in this, God shows a stunning, superlative kind of strength, a note of which I believe he wants us to hear from our text. God gets glory over Pharaoh and his sovereignty, but also in fighting for his people who are in no position to fight for themselves. This conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman that flared up in Egypt that comes to a climax in the sea, it's not one that we can wage and win. We heard that in Bobby's testimony. We can't escape the barbs of sin on our own. But God can do it for us, and he does. And when we hear these notes of God's sovereignty and we hear these notes of God's strength and his fighting for his people, I believe we will better hear the note of rest, which I'm so grateful that Pastor Sergei touched on in his prayer this morning. Look again at Moses' timely exhortation to the people as the Egyptian army is bearing down upon them. Fear not, stand firm, see, you have only to be silent. In one sense, the people weren't asked to do anything at all. 
You don't have to do anything to move, to fear not. You don't have to do anything to stand firm. You don't have to do anything to see except to just look through your eyes. There was no call to arms. There was no military strategy meetings. There was no escape route planning. Rather, fear not which isn't a call to dismiss or ignore danger as though a figment of our imagination. The danger was real, the fear was real, but they were invited to rest, knowing that God would fight for them, and that evaporates fear as sun does a morning mist. It's what keeps us from bolting. Resting in this is what keeps us watching and waiting for however long it may take to see the Lord's victory. For he is the one who put us where we are. And he is the one who has the strength to bring us out from where we are. And when he does, there will be a crescendo of glory beyond what we could have ever imagined. And I say that with a relatively high degree of confidence because I bet none of the Israelites were predicting what was next. Imagine if you could just pause and go back in time and survey all of them. How do you think God's going to get you out of this place? There's not a chance one of them is thinking, we're going to walk through the sea on dry ground, just wait and watch and see what happens. There's no way. Not even Moses with a steely faith was envisioning the deliverance that God was orchestrating. And that's the emphasis of the second half of the passage that focuses now on the sea. Yes, God conducts our trials to crescendo with his glory, but he doesn't bring us to a place we could never escape on our own and leave us there. He intends to bring us out. He conducts our deliverance to also crescendo with his glory. And we see, verses 15 through 18, God tells Moses what is going to happen to the Israelites and the Egyptians. In 15 to 16, the time has come for Moses, representing the people, stop praying. It's not the time to pray. I remember reading once about a, a husband and wife and she was expecting, and the water broke, and he says, honey, let's stop and pray. And she's like, it's not the time to stop and pray. We need to go to the hospital. There comes a time. Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. That the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And again, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they're going to go in, and I'm going to get glory over them, and they will know who I am. The sea that stands in the way of Israel's advance will be the root of their freedom and the end of their enemies. The God who conducts the Egyptian pursuit of Israel into the wilderness will now conduct their pursuit into the sea. And we have to say, who can resist his will? The one by whom and for whom and through whom all things were made, including Pharaoh and his army and the raw materials of his chariots, and the waters, and the dry ground, and the horses that pulled them, it's all held in the palm of his hand. And while these hordes of darkness are nipping at the heels of God's people, God's deliverance unfolds in this beautiful and tender moment in verses 19 and 20. The angel of God, some think this is a manifestation of the pre-incarnate Christ, he was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And at the same time, the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud, the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. The whole night. 
waiting for the wind that the Lord had sent to blow the sea into walls of water all the way across. The whole night, the Lord has his people's back. He's their rear guard. He's this impenetrable barrier to keep at bay this military force of darkness. And notice the judgment that is foreshadowed. The cloud stands between the two hosts so that they can't come near each other the whole night. On the one side, there's light. On the other, there's darkness. God's people walk in the light of God's glory. The Egyptians walk in the shadow of God's condemnation. And with this protection in place, God having their back, Moses obeys the Lord in verse 21. He stretches out his hand over the sea. Yahweh drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. God's creational power is on display in these references to divided waters. Think creation. Dry ground appearing. Think flood. This is the God who is fighting for his people. And you can see that the Israelites are doing nothing. Yahweh protects them from an army they could not conquer. Yahweh has opened up for them a way that they could not have traversed. And so in verse 22, the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And I barely know what to say here. I sat for ages with my sermon manuscript, just more here. But what do you say? One preacher puts it, this is one of the most amazing things that God has ever done. People are still talking about it. As Nehemiah said in one of his prayers, you made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. It's astonishing. One of my favorite life group questions this week came with the comment, we absolutely need an answer to this. Could they see the fish in the walls of water (laughs) to their right and to their left? Why is that my favorite? Because it's a question that comes from being caught up in the marvel and the detail of what actually happened. I have no idea of the answer. But you go on right ahead picturing the people of Israel walking between these walls of water like fortresses as they trusted in and witnessed Yahweh's incredible deliverance. Praise God for the faith behind such question, and may he give us more of it. And At the same time, picture next the spectacular defeat of the Egyptians who followed after them in verse 23. They're as bold as brass. It's absolute folly. Let's go, lads. Let's go get them between the walls of water. And so they do. All Pharaoh's horses, chariots, horsemen. And this goes on all night. And in the morning, when the Israelites can see, Yahweh looks down. He drives the Egyptian force Into a panic, he clogs their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily, and the Egyptians try to run for their lives. Don't miss the details. 
one as mighty as Egypt thought she was, the Lord still has to condescend to see them. They are knee-high to a grasshopper in his eyes. Two, the irony of their chariots driving heavily. Notice that. It's the same word used to describe God making Pharaoh's heart heavy. Heavy heart, heavy chariots, and this results in the end to demonstrate that God is the true heavy weight. Glory translates the word heavy as well. And three, notice that the Egyptians finally did come to realize that Yahweh is God. And people have puzzled over verses 4 and 8 because they're asking, if the Egyptians are dead, how do they know that Yahweh is, is God? How do they know? I understand the question, but they did know at the end when it was too late, when judgment swallowed them up, which is extremely sobering. This is how people will find out and acknowledge that Yahweh is God and his anointed king is Jesus and then they will bow to him and confess that he is Lord, not in glad submission, but in unavoidable subjection. Right before they're consigned to judgment for living as though he was not. I can't imagine the utter dread in that moment when the chariots are shut down when they realize what was happening and there was no means of escape. What a sinking feeling to recognize that all along you had been oppressing God's people, that the plagues were the doing of the God of heaven and earth, the one who made you, and that this whole time you had been spitting in his face and now judgment comes. Friend, if you are not a Christian, the time will come when you will die or Jesus will return. And I don't want the experience of the Egyptians to be yours. The dread in your soul, the anguish that would escape from your lips, the weeping over sermons that you heard urging you to believe in Christ, the thought of that is too much to bear. And so I plead with you to come to God through the greater mediator than Moses, that of Jesus Christ himself. For as surely as God directed Moses to stretch out his hand so that the waters would wash over the Egyptians, surely he will send his son from heaven to judge the living and the dead. And so believe in Christ today. Choose whom you will serve as Bobby relayed to us. Choose to serve Christ. The precursor to that final day happens in verse 26, or a precursor to that final day happens in verse 26. When Moses does stretch out his hand over the sea, and the sea does return to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, Yahweh threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. 
the waters of, walls of water collapse. They return, cover the chariots and the horsemen, all the hosts of Pharaoh that followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. Not an Israelite dies. Not an Egyptian is left. Because the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The orchestrated deliverance is complete. The sights and fears in the first movement of the chapter give way to very different sights and fears in the second movement of the chapter. And we'll come to that in a, but in a moment. And what we might be having a hard time with here is how this results in the crescendo of God's glory with dead bodies strewn up on the shore of the Red Sea and God's people looking on, which they'll sing about in chapter 15. Well, let me start with this as the first note I believe we ought to hear from the symphony of salvation as God conducts our deliverance. Hear the note of justice. God is just. Sometimes we like that, sometimes we don't. We like it when he's just towards our enemies. We don't like it when he's just towards our sins. But God is just, and he will repay. And finally, after all this time, the Egyptians who threw Hebrew baby boys into the Nile in Exodus 1 have received their due death by drowning. God is just hear the note of his justice. As Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-8, Indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. God shakes the Egyptians into the sea. He throws them into the sea. And the God who does this will throw the devil into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and false prophet will also be. Death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, they also will be thrown into the lake of fire. God's justice will be satisfied, friends. All who trust in Christ and experience God now as the just and justifier of the one who believes in Christ, they are those who will experience God's deliverance. But all who refuse to obey God's command to repent and believe the gospel will experience God's judgment. The separation between the Israelites and the Egyptians makes that note ring loud and clear. So hear the note of his justice. I believe we should also hear notes of his protection and of his power. God protects his people, and by his power, he saves them. And these are essential for us to hear. As one preacher points out, the Apostle Paul writes that these things, the Exodus in 1 Corinthians 10, they are examples for us on whom the end of the ages has come. Like the Israelites freed by and through Christ, the hordes of darkness snip at our heels as well. I quote, Satan tries to grab us before we can get away. No sooner do we make a commitment to follow Christ than we face doubt and discouragement. Satan is riding furiously after us, tempting us to give up and turn back. So we need to hear 
these notes of his justice and his protection and his power to deliver us. As he composes and conducts this salvation symphony. And when we do hear these notes of sovereignty and of strength and of rest and justice and protection and power, they are to evoke a certain response in us. As with the end of a symphony that you might attend, what does the audience do at the conclusion? They likely will clap. If it's especially exquisite, they will give a standing ovation. And similarly, a response is expected of those who hear God's salvation symphony as it crescendos with his glory. That's the purpose of the last two verses in the text, verses 30 and 31. Thus Yahweh saved Israel that day by his hand from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Not much threat anymore, are they? Israel saw the great power that Yahweh used against the Egyptians. So the people feared Yahweh and they believed in Yahweh and in his servant Moses. Every generation from this point forward on hearing of God's deliverance in the sea is called to see and to fear and to trust. And when the hand of the Lord has been raised and stretched out to deliver us in an even greater way in the cross and empty tomb of Jesus Christ, when we see that our enemies have been defeated and we're just waiting for the last enemy death to be defeated, we see we have every reason to fear and to trust in this God. And when that happens, our lives will contribute to the crescendo of his glory. The psalmist puts it best, and I will close with this. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in Yahweh. Blessed is the one who makes the Lord his trust. He does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. May God urge, work in, strengthen, compel us to contribute to this crescendo of his glory that he is orchestrating in the symphony of salvation. Let's pray. Lord, even now we ask that in response that you would help us to sing these words of these songs, rejoicing in and giving thanks for your deliverance in the past and in the present, and we hope in the future. Lord, do not let any of the seeds that have been scattered and watered to be hindered by our enemy. Would you protect us and fight for us, O Lord, 
as we have seen you do here in Exodus 14. And as we see again the baptism of one being baptized into Christ, Lord, help us to remember the own occasion, our own occasion, the, own moment, the, the moment that we were saved and baptized, that we might rejoice anew and afresh in the gift of your grace to us in and through your blessed Son. So lead us, Lord, as we continue to worship in these ways, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite the others to come and lead us in song. Bobby and I are going to go and prepare in the back here for his baptism. And I trust you will enjoy these updated lyrics.